verse. Revelation 21, first verse, as I go after my coffee. Um, in case you weren't with us last week, and again, the podcasts are always an option, but in case you weren't with us last week, again, kind of call back to mind that Jewish festival of Sukkot. Uh, the, the climax of the Jewish year, the most joyful of all the festivals. It's their festival that occurs uh, sometime in October. It's their festival where they remember really important things that all have to do with the presence of God, the glory of God, the provision of God. Uh, that's why in Sukkot, the Jewish community is remembering how God led them through uh, the wilderness how God provided for them in the wilderness those 40 years between uh, Egypt and the land of promise. You know, how God gave the quail and the manna and the clothes that didn't wear out and the cloud, uh, pillar of cloud by night and the pillar of fire by day and the water. Water's a big deal when you think about Sukkot because particularly in the Middle Eastern culture, but really for all of us, water just speaks to um, life. I mean, you, you, can, you can go a whole lot longer with food than you can water. Uh, but water is, is really important to life. That's why water is such an important image throughout, throughout the Bible. Um, we looked a while back as we, because we, we've been here celebrating Sukkot for quite a while. Festival of Tabernacles, Festival of Booths, Festival of Tents. We've been celebrating this for, for quite a while. And if you can go back in your memory, we even looked at that text in uh, Ezekiel 47, where the water starts coming. Ezekiel seeing an image, a vision of the Messianic kingdom. And when he sees that temple, uh, in the Messianic kingdom, water starts coming out of the temple and it just increases, increases, and it finally so blesses creation. Uh, do you remember where it finally flows down to and even makes a dead body of water come alive? Where does it flow to? The Dead Sea. It makes it come alive. So water is a big image, but water is part of that provision, you know, God giving us what we need. So, um, yeah, you're going to see a river here in. Um, Revelation 21, that's, you should tie to the, to the water ritual in Sukkot. You should tie it to uh, the water that flows out of the Messianic temple uh, that Ezekiel sees. Uh, anyway, so you've heard this text many, many times. But again, I want you to hear it with Jewish ears. Again, all the authors of the New Testament were Jewish, except maybe one, and Luke would have been a, it would have been a God-fearer. He would have been a Gentile attached to a Jewish synagogue. Uh, he was a Gentile who became enamored with Judaism, with all of Judaism, except probably the circumcision piece. So he never became a full proselyte. Uh, but other than Luke, all of your authors in the New Testament, obviously all of your authors of the Old Testament, are all Jewish. So you need to be able to kind of think with a Jewish mind, have a Jewish mindset in order to see some of the things that they are, they're presenting to you. So Revelation 21, here, here is eternity being presented as an ongoing eternal celebration of Sukkot. And again, we did look at Zechariah 14, that prophecy, where in Zechariah 14, he just says at the end of history, after the Messiah wraps everything up, um, what will happen for eternity is a celebration of Sukkot. 
So um, this, is, this is just so central to understanding what's written there before you. So Revelation 21, this sounds familiar to you. I hope you can look at it differently. It's a vision, so it starts. Then I, John, I, John, saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Uh, let me say something very Jewish, then I want to talk about new heaven and new earth, which is very Jewish too, because he's quoting Isaiah. This is a quotation from Isaiah. Uh, when he's talking about new heaven, new earth, no sea. Um, let me say something about sea to begin with. You know, some of you are probably disappointed in hearing there's no sea in eternity because you want to fish from now on. Uh, that's what you want. That's what heaven is, is for you. Um, nothing against sea here. And what is being presented here is the Jewish way of viewing the sea. Can you think of not counting that little body of water called the Sea of Galilee, which is a lake by our, our standards? Um, can you think of hardly any stories in the Bible about seafaring, seagoing? Um, the one that should pop to mind quickly is Jonah. Didn't end well for Jonah out there on the sea. Uh, the Jewish people are not a seafaring people. They weren't. Uh, that's why until... Uh, King Herod the Great built Caesarea Maritima for the Roman Empire. Uh, they only had one port uh, in what we call Israel, Joppa. Some of you have been with, to me, with me to Joppa. Uh, that's the only port, and that's exactly where Jonah went and jumped on a boat to get away from God. Uh, but the Jews were not seafaring people. Uh, the Phoenicians were who finally settled um, up toward the region of Lebanon. But the Jews are not seafaring people. For them, the sea was filled with danger, turmoil, chaos. Uh, you've probably read some of the book of Job. In the book of Job, you've got sea monsters. You've got Leviathans. You've got behemoths coming out of the sea. So in the Jewish mindset, sea's frightening. Sea is just nothing they ever want to do anything with. So see here, again, in the book of Revelation, for those of you that lived with me for a year as we went through the book of Revelation, you know we're dealing with symbolism here. Um, the sea here is a symbol, but it's obvious, obviously a symbol for chaos, confusion, turmoil. Uh, in chapter 13 of Revelation, the beast... And you need to boo and hiss when you hear about the beast. But in Revelation 13, the, the beast comes from, guess where? Out of the sea. The sea is just not a positive image for the Hebrew mindset. So the sea is no more. It's just the biblical way of saying the, the confusion, chaos, turmoil, danger uh, of this world, of this age has passed. Because the new heaven and new earth has come. Now, again, if you have a good study Bible, if you have a Bible with cross-references, there should be a cross-reference right here taking you back to Isaiah because there's a text in Isaiah where Isaiah talks about this. Uh, this new heaven and new earth is a Jewish hope, a Jewish dream, which is why in order to accept this Jewish dream, I've got to squeeze some of the Greek Platonism out of you. I've got to squeeze out of you your Greek-Roman background. Um, 
The Greeks and the Romans were very spiritual people. They had the spiritual world and the not spiritual world. Uh, this world was the not spiritual world. Whatever the next world was for them was a completely spiritual world. And a lot of contemporary American Christians kind of fall into that trap when they think about the next world. They think about the next world as just a completely spiritual world. Um, Plato would be proud of you, but the Bible would not. Uh, what you see in the biblical literature, particularly if you don't throw away the Old Testament, is God is concerned about all creation. God's never going to throw creation on the garbage heap. Uh, Judaism is very much into creation. We Christians are. Bread, wine, water, oil, stained glass. I mean, we use a lot of created stuff that God does his work with. So it's not, you know, matter, bad, spirit, good. That's a Plato thing. That's a Greek thing. So in the Jewish world, what they yearned for was they liked this world around us, which we should too. Uh, what they yearned for was not just a, the world coming to an end. There's nowhere in Jewish Christian thought where the world comes to an end. For those of you in traditional churches where you may do the Gloria Patri, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, what's the next phrase? World without end. Amen and amen. Yeah, there's no concept in Judaism, Christianity, the world's going to end. Now, Hollywood loves that. Plato loved it. What the Jews and the Christians always looked forward to, and that's why John's vision here is referencing a vision he would have known from Isaiah. What the Jews looked for was not the end of the world, but the rejuvenation of the world, the regeneration of the world the renewal of the world, the refreshing of the world, the restoration of the world, whatever word you want. That's what the, the Jewish and then the Christian world looked forward to. So um, that's why upon death, and this, this is classic Christianity, which we all say this, but maybe we don't say it enough in this age to help people understand this. Um, you know, when you die, your spirit goes and rests today in a spiritual reality to await the resurrection of the body. Which, again, if you're in a historic church, you actually say that every Sunday. I believe the resurrection of the body. Uh, the Bible believes in the resurrection of the body. Resurrection of the body. Now, here's some high-powered theology here, but resurrection of the body means resurrection of the body. It's not a metaphor for a spiritual existence at some point. Think Jesus after, after resurrection. Was he spiritual or was he material? The 40 days. The 40 days he's with his people. In those post-resurrection appearances that we have in John's gospel particularly. In those post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, is he spiritual or is he material? Just say yes, and you'll be right. <laughs> yeah, he ate breakfast. Do you not remember him eating breakfast? Ghosts don't need to eat breakfast. He ate breakfast. But he also showed up in a room where the doors were locked. Right? 
So, yeah, he's both. Um, what you see with Jesus after resurrection is a glorified body, a rejuvenated body, a restored body, uh, whatever, a regenerated body. So the, the, Jewish, the, the Jewish world never said, this world's a bunch of garbage, your body's a bunch of garbage, and we just wait until we can get rid of it. What the Christian Jewish hope has always been is um, your, your, your spirit can go to a spiritual place now to await the end. That's kind of what we call heaven today. But at the end of history, you just saw it here. At the end of history, heaven moves. What do you see here in Revelation 21? Heaven comes down. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the chaos was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for a husband. So, yeah, um, this eternal kingdom, this future kingdom, this place that you do go to upon death spiritually, one day um, we're going somewhere. You know, if, if you're Buddhist or Hindu, then you think that everything goes around, comes around. You know, everything just repeats itself. But if you're Jewish or Christian, we're heading somewhere. We're on a, we, we have a linear existence. History began somewhere and history is going somewhere and history will end somewhere. That's always been the Jewish Christian mindset. So, um, yeah, we're heading somewhere. We're in the process of God's kingdom growing right now. Thy kingdom come. You prayed in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come where? On earth as it is in heaven. So, yeah, um, heaven is right now where God gets completely what God wants. There's no rebellion in heaven. God gets completely what God wants. But there will come a day when God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There will come a day when the new heaven and the new earth will come down, uh, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, from God, from heaven. So this is a beautiful picture of the rejuvenation, the regeneration, uh, the end of history. Uh, so when you die, you, you know, yeah, you go to be with the Lord spiritually, but you're not finished. The church has never said you were finished at that point. Um, yeah, at some point, at the end of history, uh, th dramatic things will happen at the end of history. At the end of history, creation will be recreated. God's not throwing anything into the garbage. Uh, you know, you, now if you're Greek, you can just think God likes your spirit. But God doesn't want to do anything with the material world. That's just not Jewish, it's not Christian. So you see a new heaven and a new earth coming down. So this is the vision you know, I'm glad there's a heaven now you can go to when you die, but that heaven's going to transition. One of these days, heaven will engulf all of creation. All of creation will be rejuvenated. Think about all of those images, and you probably don't spend a lot of time in the book of Isaiah, but go read. You know, there's a reason we kept the Old Testament. Go read all those images in Isaiah where the lion will lay down with the lamb. The child will play over the adder or the viper or the snake's hole. You got all those images in the Hebrew Bible. Um, think about Ezekiel 37, you know, dim bones, dim bones that come back together. Uh, you know, that's resurrection of the body when bones come back together. Uh, so at the end of history, God's going to do something more audacious, more amazing than we think. It's not going to just be a 
spiritual thing. Uh, all of creation, because this creation belongs to God. All of creation. This creation wasn't made by an, an evil God somewhere. Uh, this creation has fallen. This creation is in need of redemption, and it will be redeemed. Again, Romans 8, Paul told you this. Paul told you that creation groans today. And it does groan. Think about hurricanes. Think about tsunamis. Think about floods. Creation groans today. I mean, you don't have to convince me. We're not in the Garden of Eden anymore, Toto. But, you know, as creation groans, there will come a time, there will come a day. Where creation will be redeemed, you will be redeemed, your dog will be redeemed, that tree that you can't get to grow in your backyard will be redeemed. All creation will be redeemed. Um, you know, make sure your vision of God's big enough to handle that. You know, don't have a vision of God that's just big enough to handle you spiritually. Not that the spirit's not important, but God's concerned more than just spirit. So, yeah, read what's in front of you. Then I saw a new heaven, new earth, for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Heaven and the eternal kingdom looks like Jerusalem. It is the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem means Jerusalem, city of peace. So the final consummated kingdom is going to be the Jerusalem that God always wanted. Um, some of you have been to Jerusalem with me. Some of you will go back to Jerusalem. Today, the Jerusalem is very important to the heart of God, but it's not the Jerusalem God always wanted. It's never been the city of peace like God wanted it to be, the city of peace. But um, the earthly Jerusalem is, is modeled on the heavenly Jerusalem. And one day, um, the kingdom will come. Heaven will come to earth. It will be, uh, you can present it, because again, these are Jewish authors. It's going to be presented as the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven uh, from God. Again, this is not something we create. It's not something we're able to work out. It comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then notice, we celebrate Sukkot. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold the, the what? Tabernacle, dwelling place, Sukkot, Shekinah, booth. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So when a Jew says that, they have images. For Sukkot, again, they built their tabernacle. You know, they had the tabernacle worship space that went with them through their wilderness wanderings, and they lived in temporary dwellings themselves as they went through their wilderness wanderings. And Jews today, to celebrate Sukkot, will build their temporary little booths in their backyard or their porch or their balcony. But all of that points toward, you know, and they, even when they're in the little, when they're in their little three-sided temporary tabernacle that they built today to celebrate Sukkot, you know, where they have branches creating the roof. Um, that's just something that points toward. That's something that points to the fact that one day God, our dwelling with God will be perfect and complete. You know, everything thus far in human history, um, we, we, we're with God, God is with us, but it's not a perfect with us yet, you know, but one day, 
you know, our being with God and God being with us will be perfect. And, you know, the everything that we do now to kind of look toward that day, you know, will remind us that that day will come. And one day God will tabernacle permanently, eternally, completely um, with us. Behold, the tabernacle or the booth or the sukkot or the sukkah is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. Uh, again, think about what the covenant is, what the Jewish covenant is that is told to Moses, repeated to Isaac, repeated to Jacob, and it keeps getting repeated throughout Jewish history. I will be your God, you will be my people. Um, we have never done it well. You know, we don't live, that's why for those of us who happen to be Methodists, we, re, we, re, we reaffirm our covenant with God every January because I promise you we've broken it through the course of the year. God never breaks his end of the bargain. We break our end of the bargain. But there will come a time where the covenant that God has been trying to make with us for thousands of years will be fulfilled. He will perfectly be our God. We will perfectly be his people. I can't even hardly imagine what that is. You know, um, the two things for Christians that make heaven heaven is not the virgins that we find there, no slight to the Islamic faith. But what makes heaven heaven for Christians, one is God is there, and we will be free from all taint of sin, all taint of brokenness. We will completely and perfectly be God's people. God will completely and perfectly be our God. That's what the covenant promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And that's what we've been working on here to keep our end of the bargain. We've been working on it here now for 3,000 years, 3,500 years. And, um, but there's coming a time where the dwelling of God will be permanent. Our covenant will be complete and permanent. Um, you know, he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. You can't get much more Jewish sounding than this, both what's being said and the picture that's being painted. Um, verse 4, and this, by the way, comes from Isaiah. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Um, sounds pretty good to me. Um, but yeah, this is when the kingdom is complete, when creation is renewed, when uh, the dwelling of God with us will be perfect, and when we will be his covenant people, not for just an hour at a time. I don't know if we make it an hour at a time. We will be, we'll be God's covenant people for eternity. We won't, we won't mess up our part of the bargain, our part of the covenant. So yeah, the former things have passed away. Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. By the way, the I am always is important to Christians. John loves all the I am statements. Um, I am, of course, goes back to the title that God gives Moses for himself. Um, but it's always in John's gospel. Anytime you see an I am statement where Jesus says, I am fill in the blank. He does it seven times in John's gospel. Uh, that's always Johannine writing. That's John writing. 
Anytime you see a, 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 an I am statement, I am the bread of life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the resurrection and the life, that's always John. Well, he, he's sort of doing it here too. Behold, I am. I am making all, behold the big one, God is making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. Again, you've read the whole book. So since you've read the whole book, when you hear the one on the throne say, it is done, you should have a memory of someone on a cross saying, it is finished. Again, the book of Revelation, uh, the Lamb and God are both on the throne at all times. You can't separate the Lamb and God on the throne. So when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, I'll share that with them. Um, yeah, you can't separate them. Anyway, it is done. He's already told you it is finished. I am Alpha and Omega. That's the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I'm the beginning and the end. See uh, this, because he's Jewish, writing for Jews and non-Jews by this point, um, when he says, I'm Alpha and Omega, um, since he's writing for Jews, he's not using Jewish alphabet here. He's using the Greek alphabet here. Because he's using the Greek alphabet, he has to tell you what Alpha and Omega is, the beginning and the end. It's the first and the, and the last a letter of the Greek alphabet. So he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, remember John chapter 7, that great water festival, that great water libation. You know how during the biblical festival Sukkot in the temple, you know, for seven days, they bring water once a day from the pool of Siloam to the altar uh, and poured out as a way of thanking God for water, as a way of saying, God, keep giving it to us. And then on the seventh, last great day of the festival, maybe eighth day, um, they, they bring water and they circle the altar seven times. And as they're pouring out all that water on the altar there in Jerusalem during the biblical festival of Sukkot, that's when Jesus stands up and makes a scene. We looked at it in John chapter 7. He stood up and he said, um, I am the water of life. All who are thirsty come to me. So again, in, 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 in Christian thinking, we can't separate Jesus out from God very well. So here's the one um, who says, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So this water of life is all over the Bible, including Jesus saying, I am the, I am the water of life. This without payment... If you got a study Bible or a good um, cross-reference, that's the first verse of Isaiah 55. Um, there's a reason we kept the Hebrew Bible. Please read it. Verse 7, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son, my child. Again, the covenant is fulfilled at this point. But, and this is good Judaism too, but here's the list of people that are not going to be participating in this final consummation. They don't want to participate in this final consummation. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, 
Their portion will be with the be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Um, so that's after the judgment. Uh, this list here, I always, every time I read one of these lists, and John does these lists, Paul does these lists. These lists are fairly common in the New Testament uh, because they also are fairly common in Greco-Roman writing. These lists are fairly common here. Um, I always feel um, compelled when I, when I do one of these lists uh, to say that the, the tense, uh, the verb tense in the Greek here um, is, is, is a tense that means ongoing participation in this stuff. Um, in other words, you could almost translate the Greek tense here, but as for those who practice fearfulness, faithlessness, detestability. So, the, you know, it's not just people who slip up and sin. We know that doesn't keep you out of the kingdom. We know that grace is available. You repent, you turn around, you come back. So sin doesn't keep you out of the kingdom as long as it's sin that you repent of and you offer to God and you let God's grace uh, uh, forgive and cleanse. But if your life is characterized by these things, if your life is a continuous practicing of these things, yeah, we need to pray. We need to pray for you. If your life is continually characterized by these things, um, and this is a standard Jewish list. These are things that throughout the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Bible, and then Jesus will say to don't do this stuff. Don't let this stuff here characterize your list. Um, you know, th there's been a rapid, rapid growth in the last um, hundred years of, um, of the doctrine of universalism in the church among Christians. Universalism just means everybody's going to get there. God's so loving and so kind. It's, it's God's job description to love you and take care of you that, that, that everybody will be part of the kingdom. That's universalism. Uh, all the historic church for the first 1,500 years, over and over and over again in the councils of our churches, we've said no. There's nowhere in the Bible you can find the doctrine of universalism. That at the end, God's going to say to everybody, yeah, I didn't really mean what I said. It doesn't really matter. Just, just come on in. Uh, throughout the history of the church, it's been clear uh, that... that you know, a universalism like that is just not part of what we find in the Bible. Now, some great theologians have said, and I'll accept this. Um, yeah, some great theologians have said, like the book we're reading, some great theologians said, we can hope for that. I think as humane, Christian, Christ-like people, I hope everybody's in the kingdom. I hope that. But I cannot teach that as Christian doctrine. You know, if you, if you, if, now, if you kind of hope everybody goes to hell, we need to talk about that too. <laughs> so that's why universalism has always been told as a doctrine. I mean, you can hope for it. I, and I know that's the heart of God. I know that's the heart of God. Um, but even though we may hope that everybody will be part of the final kingdom, we cannot teach that as dogma or doctrine in the church because there's no way you can do the Bible and end up there. 
in, in these images here in Revelation, somebody's in the, in the new heaven and new earth, and there are some that aren't. Um, Yeah, we got choices. Yeah, our choices are really important. You know, I like to, I used to say to my kids, and I think one time when I got to preach the baccalaureate for a high point university, I did say, you know, our, our choices, we make thousands of them a day, but our choices add up to make our life. Yeah, eventually those choices, add, so we need to be careful about our choices. And that's why the people... I mean, there are some people who don't want to be in the eternal kingdom. They would be miserable in the eternal kingdom. I mean, in the presence of God, lost in wonder, love, and praise forever? Yeah, some people don't want to be in any kingdom that they're not the center of. And so God will let people have their way. You know, a good place to end is C.S. Lewis. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes is in The Great Divorce, which is an amazing book. You have to work on a little bit. It's an allegory. It's a parable. But you, you get the point. In that book, he, he's got one of his heroes, George MacDonald, who says, In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, Thy will be done. He will let you have what you want. If you, won't have, if you want to have nothing to do with God, it's frightening, but he will let you have what you want. He's not going to bring you to heaven against your wishes or against all the choices you make. Um, yeah, if Hitler went to heaven, it'd be his hell. Um, so he gets another kind of hell. Um, but um, anyway, that's a Jewish mindset. That's always been the Christian mindset. It's only been in the modern era in church history where we've gotten so polite um, that we, 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 we've just sort of created, you know, uh, 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 you know I, I can almost deal better with someone who wants to argue universalism with me than someone who's just universalist by default. You don't believe or act like anybody's going to hell. You know, I mean, if you really, I mean, at least accept the doctrine of universalism and, and argue with us about the doctrine of universalism. But there are people, I think, in this culture who, because of the way they think or feel or whatever, they, they, they are just universalists by default. You know, they, they really don't think God could ever. And another CSO's quotation, he also says, hell is locked from the inside. And what he means by that is, again, he'll let you have your way. If that's what you want, he will let you have it. That's just the way. Our experience of God is that way. The Scriptures teach that, and the best of church tradition teaches that. Uh, if you don't want to be part of this eternal kingdom, he will let you have your way on it. Uh, the only debate we've ever had, and this I'll leave you this to think about, the only debate we've really ever had in Christian history is how long hell lasts. Uh, the conviction, the consensus conviction is hell's as eternal as heaven is. Um, so you can cogitate on that a while. But we've never had any debate in Christianity whether or not there was a hell. I mean, justice demands. 
just sheer justice demands that there has to be a hell. Um, yeah. Anyway, so hopefully all of you don't have to worry about that. You probably wouldn't be here on a Wednesday afternoon <laughs> if you were if you were not somebody seeking the grace of God. So um, we will stay, you know, that now that you get this terrible place to end this text, uh, we'll jump back into the new heaven and new earth after you've now been shown who's not in the new heaven and new earth. We'll jump back into the new heaven and new earth, not next Wednesday, but the next. So I get to stay in town and have Valentine's Day this year. Go in peace. Make sure you know everybody in the room.
Let me see. Oops, I meant to.